This podcast is supported by award number 2019JUFX K001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, research findings, and recommendations presented here are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reflections on Research. I'm your host, Mike Geringer, the Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. just want to remind everyone that this podcast is brought to you today by the National Mentoring Resource Center, which is sponsored by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, and we really thank them for their investment not only in the work of the center, uh, but for all of their investment in youth mentoring uh, programs and research and supports for this uh, work with young people. So we really couldn't do this uh, without their generous support and partnership. And we thank OJGDP for their investment in this great work. So I'm really excited to have our guest with us today because we're going to be talking about something a little bit different today. Normally on this podcast, we're talking about program evaluations or the results of some study of a, a programmatic effort or or maybe the studying of of mentors and kids' lives naturally. But today we're going to be diving another layer down, I think. We're going to be talking about what happens at the relationship level, kind of what goes on when an adult and a young person that they're mentoring are sitting together at a table trying to figure out what they're going to talk about and how that's going to go for the day. Uh, And that's really where the rubber meets the road in our our field. We spend a lot of time talking about program practices, but at the end of the day, it's, it's two people that have to work together. And we're going to be talking about a concept today called attunement that I think speaks a lot to how mentors need to be approaching those interactions with young people if they want them to resonate and have their ultimate uh, impact on the young person they're working with. So uh, let's get diving into this here. Our guest today is Dr. Julia Price, and Julia is a professor and the Associate Director of the Faculty Center for Ignatian Pedagogy, I hope I said that properly, at uh, Loyola University uh, in Chicago. And uh, Julia's research focuses on school-based interventions, the role of mentors in the lives of system-involved youth, and on program development more generally. Uh, Additional areas of her scholarship include the development and study of mentoring programs internationally, and the role of social justice in social work curricula. And uh, Julia currently teaches in the undergraduate, master's, and doctoral programs there at Loyola and has been involved in the mentoring field for several decades now, I feel like, Julia, uh, going back a ways and uh, is also a member of the NMRC Research Board, so does a lot of work on this project. So welcome, Julia. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm so happy to be here. So one of the things, well, what we're going to be talking about today is attunement and ways in which mentors can better relate to young people that they're working with. Uh, But I think as we'll discuss, a large part of attunement is kind of taking the time to make sure that you're in a good relationship space before beginning perhaps the work of that session with a young person. So I'm going to mirror that here and do a little relationship time with you up front. Uh, I mostly have to ask just kind of how you're holding up under COVID and under all the other things that are happening in the world. I feel like it's been a long year for for everybody. So I want to start off by just asking how you're how you're doing and and how COVID has had an impact uh, perhaps on your research work over the last several months. Oh, yes. I know it feels like every conversation we, maybe that's one of the benefits of this time is that we have to check in, (laughs) see how people are holding up. It's such a strange time. You know, I think like many of us, we're we're doing um, as well as can be expected. And we're one of the uh, fortunate families in the sense that my husband and I both um, to a certain degree, have work that can be transported to home. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to work from home and to continue as best I can the work I was involved in before, although it has required a lot of uh, modifications, like you mentioned. 
We have three small children at home. So I have um, three daughters who are nine, seven, and five. And so spring um, was particularly hectic in trying to uh, navigate the homeschooling experience while working. And I really would rather not <laughs> go back to that time, although it was there were lots of benefits to it in terms of getting to watch my kids learn a little bit more up close try my put my observational hat on a little bit more as a as a homeschool teacher and certainly it's been stressful but i feel like we're we're making our way and you know certainly like many people there's much to to sort of treasure about this kind of slowing down time to a certain degree in terms of my work I was just starting a project um, with Kelsey Dean from New Zealand and Linda Gilkerson from the Erickson Institute here in Chicago, um, as that was that's funded by the Himera Foundation, which is out of Colorado, that really relied on focus groups and interviews. And we had to pivot like many folks and try to figure out how to do that work online. And it's amazing how sort of arduous the process is, particularly when you're focusing on relationships to try to translate a data collection process to an online format. So that's one example of where things just kind of came to a screeching halt and we had to kind of rethink what we were trying to do. And I I, I mean, I do think it's helping me consider, you know, what can happen online and what can't. And for example, we, Linda and I just did a training for practitioners that was entirely online for the first time in June And that has now opened the door to hopefully do a similar training with folks in New Zealand um, that's entirely online. Um, So it's opened up some doors as well to thinking about how can we share these ideas, you know, at a distance remotely and um, what can and can't happen when we're talking about relationship, you know, relationship development when we're doing it in an online space. So I'm grateful too for that sort of the opening of those ideas, but it's definitely been uh, this is just a time of such uncertainty, and I find that 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 global uncertainty and unrest feels like a chance for a lot of possibilities and new beginnings, and also just is like fundamentally unsettling. So um, I feel like that's been the space we've been <laughs> dwelling in since March. I would say. Yeah, no, I I hear you on that, and and I feel similarly. Uh, it's both a chance to maybe rethink some things, uh, not only about our personal lives, but I think it's thrown uh, many aspects of our country into, into sharp, uh, a sharp light has been shined on, on certain things uh, because of this, but, but it's also unsettling. You feel like you're a little untethered from historical context, perhaps uh, not that this hasn't happened before in history, but certainly not in our lifetimes where we've had to deal with something like this. So I think just being in that, unknown space is is always a little unsettling. So Julia, let's dive into the topic of attunement here. And uh, really, I'm hoping that you can maybe just start off by telling our audience a little bit about what we mean by attunement when we use that, that word. Uh, how do you define it? And really kind of what led you to study this? Because most researchers study, you know, programs or program outcomes or uh, you know, what youth are getting out of mentoring relationships that you decided to study, in this case, mentoring relationships and the interactions that are happening within those relationships. So uh, why don't you tell our audience what you mean by attunement and why it matters so much in mentoring? Great. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate you asking that because I um, it helped me. It's funny because it's, I guess, it's a nice opportunity to kind of think big picture about why this concept and why this focus and I was realizing, I, I worked as a clinician prior to going back for my PhD, and I was working in a residential facility with with children who um, were system in, system involved and unable to be living with families in the community because of behavioral challenges or emotional challenges. And um, so I had this opportunity to work really closely with kids, kind of in in vivo, like in in a residential setting, and became particularly interested in what was happening in these relationships that allowed these young people to to thrive or to endure these challenging circumstances? And in the cases of young people who were really struggling, what was failing to happen in the relationships and what were the young people bringing and what were the adults bringing? So that was actually what brought me back to school. And I was really interested in studying resilience kind of broadly 
and and what was contributing to the resilience I saw in these young people who had sort of, you know come through these really difficult circumstances and still presented with a general desire to build relationships and sort of a general hopefulness about their lives. And at that point, I met Tom Keller, who was actually coming to the University of Chicago the same year I was. And he was interested in mentoring, particularly as it related to resilience. Well, I should say he was interested in mentoring. And in my study of resilience, mentoring was one of those factors that we all know kind of was most reliably predicting resilience among young people. So, so, so that, that sort of pairing is what brought me into the world of mentoring. And I think I've always really, I, I've found that a lot of my questions are inductive in nature and really driven by a curiosity about kind of bottom up understanding or kind of bottom up wisdom. And how can we, how can we take what we're learning on the ground and systematize it or sort of like study it in a systemic way that allows us to broaden that understanding and I think to a certain degree that comes from my background as a, as a practitioner. Like I, I really am driven most by questions from the ground, I guess is the best way to put it. And that practitioners might ask or that practitioners might understand differently than researchers do. Um, And then I'm interested as a researcher in trying to, to sort of bring those, that wisdom to light. And so that's where that focus on relationships started, I think was like, what's happening here in this interaction that's working and how can we take what's working from here and teach it to other people that are trying to do something similar. So attunement, so the formal definition that, that I identified from the early work I did watching matches in school-based settings is um, the capacity for a mentor or a staff member to respond to a young person's verbal and nonverbal cues while keeping in mind that young person's needs and desires. So it's really a process of cue reading, like watching what that young person is showing you and really not looking for them necessarily to show you with their words or in ways that adults communicate, but rather in the way that that young person is communicating. And in that early work that I did with Tom, I had this unique opportunity to essentially like be a fly on the wall in school-based programs for two years every week and watch what was happening and write down pages and pages and pages and collect quantitative data as well, as well as interview data. And so it was really through that data that uh, I became aware of this set of skills that the most effective mentors were bringing to those connections. And it was largely based on a flexible capacity to read cues while prioritizing the needs of the young person, essentially. Great. Thanks, Julie. I, I, I like that definition. And, and it sounds like, you know, there's very much a kind of an intentional mindfulness piece to attunement that it's, uh, it's in many ways about just like the word says, you're tuned in to what the young person is, is kind of saying, or sometimes not saying, right? Sometimes that nonverbal energy can be just as instructive as to how they're receiving a conversation or an activity uh, during that meeting time as, as anything the kid might say. Um, so it's, it's neat to think that this came out of just watching matches in action and seeing kind of what mentors did and, and how, that, how that influenced what the young person was getting out of it and how well they were, were working together. Right. And yeah, and also watching staff um, as they were supporting the system as well. And I think um, it's interesting that you you mentioned the mindfulness piece, and maybe we'll talk a bit more about the fan in a minute. But Linda Gilkerson, who has been an invaluable colleague, who developed the original fan model, and F- fan stands for facilitating facilitating attuned interactions. She said she uses this expression: "You have to attune to self to attune to another," and it's this idea that you really need to sort of know your own cues and also regulate yourself in order to be able to read the cues of another person. And that's supported theoretically as well. But um, when you watch those really skilled mentors, you know, with a young person in a school who's like under the table or like disrupting the activity that's happening, that mentor typically has the ability to regulate and observe the young person, even in the midst of a stressful situation. So that mindful piece and what we call mindful self-regulation is a really important part of the attunement model. You mentioned the FAN kind of framework, I guess, for for attunement. And I think 
there's a handout that kind of shows that framework a little bit that we're going to try and make available along with this podcast uh, for download uh, for folks that would like to see it kind of visually represented. But I'm hopeful for our audience here, Julia, that maybe you can just kind of walk people through the various factors that go into attunement. Um, it's not really even just a, a framework. It's, it's actually kind of a sequential process is my understanding. So I'm hopeful that you can maybe just explain some of the core principles and and how a mentor would kind of move through them to make sure that they were attuned to uh, where their young person is at. Yeah. So we talk about it kind of as an approach, like you're saying, and kind of an orientation to reading cues. And so the fan is, if we think of a visual, it's essentially like a half circle and that half circle is divided into five, what we call wedges. And in the middle of that half circle with the five wedges are these three circles, smaller circles. And the circles in the middle are essentially what the adult is kind of managing or juggling in as they seek to attune to the young person. And those circles consist of the program expectations. So like I have to call this mentor once a week and check in and this is how long the call has to be. And these are the things I have to ask that mentor um, and then the adults' expectations and needs. Um, so I'm, I'm in this relationship because I really want to help this kid or I'm tired today or he hasn't shown up for three weeks or whatever that is. And then the youth's preferences and concerns. So what is the young person showing me? What are their preferences? What are their needs? And so as we think about that kind of system of mentoring that Tom has advanced in the field, these circles really reflect that, that the adult who's navigating this relationship is kind of also in between these multiple other dimensions of the relationship. So then the five wedges, the one on the far left is called the calming or the mindful self-regulation wedge. And we say that the fan is actually intended to be like a GPS or a tracking device. It's not really intended to be a methodology where you go from left to right. Um, the only place that we really ask folks to practice starting in is the calming wedge. So you're walking into a school-based program, you're a mentor or a staff, like checking checking in briefly with yourself to see how you're doing that day. What are you bringing into the encounter? What is your body telling you? And besides that calming wedge, the other four wedges are essentially intended to help us map out where the other, the young person is. So the, the wedge just next to, next to calming is, is what we call the feeling wedge in the mentoring fan. So that young person might be in feeling. So you walk into the program and they're having a really strong feeling. Um, they're, they're telling you how happy they are to see you or they're, they're, they turn their back to you and they're presenting you with a feeling. Um, the next wedge is the thinking wedge. That's when a young person is ready to understand a problem together or um, to think collaboratively. We call that wedge also collaborative exploration. The next wedge is the doing wedge. So that's when a young person is ready to act. Um, so they, they failed a test and the two of you have thought about how you're going to go to the teacher on it. And then you're going to create a strategy for how to do that. That's the doing wedge. And then the final wedge is the reflecting wedge. So really trying to integrate into our time with young people their reflective capacity um, to look at themselves and to kind of distill whatever's taken place in our experience together so that they can do more with it and take it with them. So the idea is not so much to move from left to right, but to meet the young person where they are. So if they're having strong feeling, instead of saying like, what do you want to do today? Um, just elaborating on that feeling. Like, I'm so happy to see you too. Like, this is, it's so great that we can be here today. Pause. And then see what the young person brings next. Maybe they're still in feeling or maybe they're ready to move to, to thinking or doing together. As opposed to what we often do, which is, especially with negative emotions, a young person tells us like, I'm so angry. I don't like this activity that we're doing at all today. And then we move right to, we might move right to thinking or doing like, okay, well, how do we want to solve that problem? Or what should we do instead? Instead of saying like, I know it is really disappointing. I know you don't like doing, you know, I know you don't like practicing your reading, right? And what we see when we use the fan and we meet the young person where, where they are is that they feel more seen and heard, which strengthens the relationship. And then ideally the relationship can become more of a collaborative sharing rather than the mentor feeling like, or the staff feeling like they have to come in 
and, and really be in a problem solving role, um, which is really a fascinating thing we've learned, Mike, from our research is that a lot of staff feel like they're constantly solving problems and putting out fires um, rather than building relationships. And we're, I think this, tool, this approach can really help us uh, shift our focus back to building relationships and ideally kind of building capacity of the adults within our mentoring systems to solve the problems with the young person. Yeah, I know that was a lot. Does that make sense? No, that makes complete sense. And I, I like the fact that you really uh, reiterated that it is not necessarily a sequential thing. It's something where uh, I use this framework perhaps to just read where the young person I'm working with today is at and wherever they are on those wedges, uh, that's where we're going to start from. And, you know, I, I like that uh, quite a bit. It also makes me think that there's quite a bit of, or some overlap, I should say, with things like uh, change talk or motivational interviewing where you know i'm i'm kind of taking cues from the person i'm talking to i'm perhaps reinforcing some things or i'm i'm going to listen to those cues but then move them to uh, you know, you mentioned the thinking phase or these other phases where we perhaps reiterate what we're working on or learning um is there overlap between you know a concept like this and something like change talk or I'm just curious as to how this aligns with maybe other theoretical uh, ways of working with people. Yeah, it's a great question. So, and it's exciting because actually um, Sam and I in this work with Friends of the Children right now are just starting to look at those overlaps, particularly as it relates to training that we can do um, for the Friends and the Friends of the Children model that may offer concepts related to motivational interviewing and also attunement. And so where are their overlaps and where are their unique contributions? And I will say, you know, my, my knowledge of motivational interviewing is, is developing. Um, so I feel like I, I can't be, I can't speak with too much authority on that piece, but I can say that in my initial thinking on this and in our work so far, I do think there are some interesting overlaps in terms of things like asking open-ended questions and using like a collaborative approach to problem solving instead of like writing the writing reflex, this idea of kind of like fixing problems. My sense so far in my understanding of the two concepts is that one piece that attunement focuses a bit more on certainly and explicitly includes is that self-regulation piece. So um, what calming practices are you doing within your day or in your work as a mentor or a staff member to help regulate and how are you attending to the stress level that you're managing in your role? Um, and how is that affecting your relationships? And then also I'm interested in, so I mentioned that with attunement, the central task is reading cues. And as you read cues, what we see is that the young person typically moves him or herself on the fan. Whereas I think uh, motivational interviewing is a little bit more of a sort of prescribed order uh, to a certain degree um, and tends to be focused on behavior change in particular, or that's kind of the tradition it comes from. Whereas I think attunement comes more from a relational lens of, of building connection. So I almost think sometimes of like attunement as that foundational piece that allows you then to move into motivational interviewing toward behavior change. If that, that sequence to a certain degree might be useful. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I, and I think you're right about kind of the distinction between the, the two. Although I would, you know, both both approaches, I think, are, are grounded in a, a collaborative thing and trying to avoid that writing reflex. And uh, listeners to this podcast, we had Sam on last year, and he talked at length about those reflexes. And, and I think it ties into that emotional regulation piece, because frankly, a lot of those writing reflexes will come out as an adult uh, when you're mad about something or you're upset about something or, you know, the kid says, I don't want to do this stupid activity today or whatever they, they kind of throw at you. And, you know, I think even as parents, you know, we slip into, you know, those moments where you um, tell someone that they should, you know, you do the shooting or you tell war stories about like, I tried that once and it didn't work and it's not going to work for you. You know, those are often emotional responses, right? We kind of go to those when we don't know what else to say and are kind of pissed about something. So, um, 
And so, uh, you know, I, I think I really appreciate that kind of emotional regulation piece and just, you know, t- reminding mentors that they're not going to do their best work uh, with a young person if they're showing up to those sessions juggling their own baggage, right, and dealing with their own uh, things um, top of mind rather than what that young person needs or wants to work on. So, Right, right. And I have to say, Mike, as I mentioned, one of the things that's been so interesting about this work and having the opportunity to train staff and mentors is just seeing, again, how much first, like how stressful many of their, particularly with staff, how stressful they experience their roles to be, how they often feel like they're kind of moving through this checklist of needing to solve problems and how much, how heavy that can be to carry um, in terms of like trying to work with these different folks who often come from very different backgrounds and trying to solve problems all day. And so the I, I didn't realize how often staff experience their roles as stressful and how important it is for us at a program level to try to look at sort of how we're caring for staff and how we're helping them manage that stress in terms of the work they're doing. So I think, and, and I think the other side that I'm so excited about with motivational interviewing and attunement is it helps us realize that like, like you said, what we're bringing into the relationship really matters. And also just that this process of building these relationships is not easy and it really needs, we really need support in doing that. And these different approaches and tools I think can really help offer some of the support that can be very useful um, but also at as, as a larger field, giving more space for how hard this is, <laughs> um, I think really helps us as a field be more of service to mentors and, and staff who support them. I think that's a good segue. And I wanted to ask you about uh, the research you've been doing around attunement, because uh, there's a, a number of wrinkles that you're kind of investigating around it, not just, you know, how does it go for mentors when they try and do these things, but you just mentioned the impact that that has on staff and that there's kind of almost a staff level attunement that needs to happen between uh, the case manager type person and the mentor so that they can work collaboratively well together. So I'm I'm hopeful here that you know you can maybe just tell our audience a little bit about what you've learned from some of the studies you've been doing and and kind of you know seeing how attunement plays out in the wild, so to speak. Uh, uh, what have you been learning uh, from your studies? Well, it's interesting actually because that initial work that we meant that we talked about earlier, where I was able to observe um, mentors and staff in these school settings, I initially came out of that work thinking we would train mentors. And when I started working with agencies, almost to to an agency, they initially asked to apply the training to staff. And we had observed the same set of skills in, in observing the staff of the programs from that initial work. But they they would often come and say, you know, like, this is hard for all of us and our staff need to work on this first before we can be asking mentors to do it. And I think the other piece of it was like staff. We, we have space to devote to their professional development, but as a field, even five, six years ago, there was more hesitancy to asking mentors for time to, to develop their skills. So our initial work was largely with staff, and in some of the early work we did, um, we were excited to see that the staff were, were reporting an increase, in, an increase in their empathy levels, as well as their self-awareness, kind of of their own, like you said, their own sort of writing writing reflexes and their own dysregulation in their work. And in, in talking with the mentors who were supported by staff who were trained, the mentors talked about how much they appreciated the support that the staff provided to them as it related to kind of connecting with the staff. I also We also learned from that early work that staff would talk about feeling more of a sense of purpose in their work um, when they were shifting that focus to relationship development, which was an unexpected kind of exciting thing to see that as they felt they could attend more to relationship development, um, they enjoyed their work or felt more purposeful or rewarded by it. So that was from some of our early work. And some of our more recent work, Kelsey and I have been working on developing an attunement scale. So a way for mentors to rate their own attunement levels. And we're now working on a, on a sort of partner scale for youth to rate mentor attunement. So 
we're also, we have the data now to write up to on a validated scale that we hope to publish and, and disseminate to the field where mentors can rate their own levels as well as youth rate what they perceive as their mentor's ability to attune to them in the relationship. Oh, that's great. And I'm dying to see that work because I'm I'm fascinated to see how well uh, mentors' opinions of their own attunement correlate with the young people's uh, that they're working with, right? Are they, are they telling the same story about uh, the attunement level that's happening there? Uh, it, we're really excited about that too. And it's also been so interesting to think about, well, A, like how, how good are we at reporting on our own attunement levels? And, and are the more attuned adults actually better? Are, do they report that they're more attuned? Or in some cases, are less attuned adults really out of step with their attunement level, right? So even this construct itself of self-awareness, like we might see that folks rate themselves highly when actually when you observe them, they're really not as attuned as they think. So there's that sort of complexity to thinking about this construct. Um, how well do we self-monitor um, but then also, it's been so interesting, Mike, to talk about, like we talked with Carla Herrera and David Dubois about this, Kelsey and I, around, like, do young people experience attunement in the same way that we see adults exhibiting it, right? So for, like, what does it feel like for a young person when an adult understands them or when they feel seen or heard by an adult? Like, how would they talk about that? And we're working on a project right now, and I want to give Kelsey a lot of credit because she really sort of pushed us to think about it being youth-centered, um, where we're asking young people to essentially speak back to this concept of attunement that we've developed by watching adults um, and see how young people talk about sort of being on the receiving end of this experience. Awesome. And I, it's got me thinking, is there like a youth equivalent of this? Like, is there a uh, fan kind of framework for young people around this as well. I'm thinking about the bi-directionality of this. And, you know, obviously I think the adults carry a bigger burden here, but I mean, young people do need to show up to a mentoring interaction uh, with a mindset that's, that's ready to go and do the work as well. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we can't meet that young person where they're at, but I'm also curious to see how uh, young people would rate their own attunement with what their mentor is bringing uh, to the table. Yes, that's a great idea. It's a great idea. So we're um, the the closest we've come to that is to start thinking about a version of the mentoring fan that that could be used for like um, ment youth mentors who are in like a peer mentoring context, like you know high school students or maybe mentoring middle school students, something like that. But so kind of translating these ideas to younger people, but I'm really, I love that idea of like a, 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 a version that could, you know, be incorporated into youth training um, in helping them prepare to be in a mentoring relationship and, or to kind of help them think about what do I need to show up for this relationship and sort of participate as a partner in it. I love that idea. I, I think that could be really interesting. Yeah, and since you just mentioned kind of training around this uh, and have trained mentors around attunement concepts, I, I guess my question is, is this something that individuals can learn through training or is this one of those things where you have to do like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours of practice thing or, you know, because uh, going back to, you know, some of the other things we talked about here, like motivational interviewing, like I've probably read a good 500 pages on MI and and theoretically how to do it, but uh, doing it in practice in real time as a person's throwing emotions and thoughts and nonverbal cues at you uh, is really difficult to remember kind of how to to stay aligned with, with that. And so I'm just curious, can you learn attunement or is this something, because a lot of it seems very like uh, social emotional skills. And, and while I do think people can learn those, I'm wondering if some of this isn't just who you are as a person kind of like, right. So. Yeah. It's a great question. So, you know, I guess five, seven years ago when I had this attunement construct that I'd written about, but I was still trying to figure out how to teach it. That was the biggest question that, that practitioners would come to me with at conferences is like, all right, this is a great idea. How do we teach it? And that's where the fan came in with Linda. Um, and it was so synchronous because we, we met each other and we had such overlapping 
she was coming from the home visiting world, training folks that were supporting parents, new parents in under-resourced communities often. And she had this construct of attunement and I had a construct of attunement from these different fields. And she, so your question is one that practitioners sort of led with when we first started this work. And I'm happy to say that I think we can teach attunement in my work with about 15 agencies now. What I see is there's certainly diverse skill sets that folks bring. And I would say in our initial work that Tom and I did, there were about 15 to 20% of the mentors we observed um, who consistently struggled with demonstrating skills of attunement in their relationships. Like just, it was almost like just banging their heads against the wall. It was, it was hard to watch even. (laughs) And I, I will say that in my work with agencies, I'm seeing about a, a similar, and I don't have the data on this exactly, but when I work with staff in particular, I feel like so far at most agencies, there's like a 15 to 20% of those staff that really struggle with this concept and in some cases really aren't interested in learning it or um, feel like kind of like the way I've been doing it works fine for me. But I would say 70 to 80% of the adults that I've been working with really show an openness and aptitude to developing these skills. Um, So I've been heartened by that. And I think it's definitely teachable. I think we all come to it with a certain baseline. And I will say also that I, I feel like we actually have to keep working at it. Like it's not something that we master. It's more of kind of a daily practice. I always joke when I do a training, Mike, that literally like every time I have a training, (laughs) I have an example from that same day with my kids where I completely missed the boat in some connection with that. I'm like, I have a very available example from like two hours ago as I was preparing for this training where I totally botched this thing. So, but one of the key things we talk about in the attunement training is, is the the role of, is, is A, how common misattunement is and that actually it's not, our goal is not so much to always be attuned, but rather to have that self-awareness to know when we have really missed the boat with someone and then the skills to try to repair that disconnect. So, so a lot of what we're helping staff and mentors do too, is practice like learning how to say, you know, I feel like last week when I was here with you, I just really didn't listen very well. And I've been thinking about it and I wanted to check in and see if we could try that again. Like, and just kind of normalize that these relationships have like st- fits and starts and that that's a part of the growth of the relationship, actually. Yep. Oh, I love that. And and it really makes me think of uh, the work that Tom Keller and Renee Spencer did on their STAR study where they examined, you know, kind of match closures broadly, but really also looked closely at matches that had kind of fizzled out and had some negative experience and it ended early. And it was shocking how many of those early endings uh, that had ended, you know, with parents being upset or the kid being disappointed or the mentor feeling uh, like this was not the experience that they had signed up for. So much of that was driven by these small little issues that the the people involved in that, whether it was the match coordinator, the parent, the mentor, or sometimes the youth themselves, they just didn't have a way of expressing those those concerns and challenges. And so when someone did miss the boat, as you put it, and, and made a mistake or said the wrong thing or, or wasn't reading someone's cues right, it just festered and it wound up building up kind of resentment over time. And then it would, you know, often explode in, in some, you know, argument or incident that led to the match dissolving uh, when perhaps it could have been saved if folks had just had the awareness and the language and a way of thinking about sharing that, as you just said, that uh, got it out in the open and dealt with so that we could go back to doing the the work together. So Right. And it's I'm glad you mentioned that because I saw their presentation at the summit last year and I I love how much attention they're giving to the role of staff in in sort of maintaining and supporting um or or not those relationships. And I think I was I was really struck by the same thing that there were so many and we look, see that in our own relationships, right? Like if we don't do the work of those small ruptures, like if we don't attend to them, they can get worse. But I think what's exciting is just bringing to bringing to the mentoring field an awareness that there's that there's a lot of these of these ruptures that will take place because these are just normal flawed relationships. And how do we how do we prepare folks ahead of time and support them during to sort of navigate those? 
because they can strengthen the relationship if we're able to navigate them, but we often don't have the skills or to support to do that. So So Julie, I wanted to ask you about uh, one last thing that you'd mentioned here around the research you've been doing. You mentioned that some of this has been observational um, and not just around this, but at other points in your career. And I just had a question about observational research and mentoring kind of more broadly. And, and these are situations where you're embedded in a, in a classroom or some other meeting space where mentors and youth are meeting and you're like watching them. <laughs> I'm just curious about that kind of research in general, like, uh, how do you do that well? How do you make sure that your presence is not changing what it is you're observing? Because I, I can't imagine, you know, meeting with a young person I was working with and knowing that someone was, you know, over in the corner taking notes. I think it would greatly influence kind of how I was acting. So anything you want to share with our audience about how to do that well? Yes. Well, one thing that I that I will say that really surprised me is that particularly in that early work when we when I was look, watching these school-based programs, right? I think because it was a school-based program and there were a lot of adults kind of circling in and out, both of the school and of the program itself, whether it's mentors or staff or like the teacher who comes by or the librarian or whoever, um, I was surprised by how sort of normal, in quotes, it was for to, to be another adult in that world, and I, I, I will, the other, the other advantage that I had was that I was there every week for two years. So while I think initially I was that kind of weird person over to the side, eventually I just became a part of the fabric of the program. And my, and I, I think another, another piece that really facilitated that is that the, the young people that we were observing were for the most part in elementary and early middle school. And so I think if we were observing matches with more adolescents, they might have been more aware of my presence than the young kids were, mostly because the young kids were really focused on that, their own projects and their own situations. So, so I think I became a part of the program and was there consistently enough. And, and schools and programs are accustomed to um, adults kind of circling in and out to a certain degree. Um, so those both helped me, I think. But I will tell you, I was surprised by how quickly I just became a part of it. Like there were some things going down right in front of me that I was kind of like, that I almost felt like, oh gosh, you know, like, should I excuse myself? Because I was observing and I wasn't intervening and it was nothing really dramatic, but you know, just like the regular meltdowns that happen in these programs, just because there's kids involved, you know? So, um, so I was surprised by how easily I blended in. The other thing that I've become interested in with observation is just, again, like I was saying earlier, how much, how much can we report on our own skills when it comes to connecting with other people? And so I do think there's places in our programs where we can insert small places where we can observe even five minutes, three minutes, the last minute of a session as you're sort of surveying the matches. And I'm, I'm really interested in how as a field, we can kind of equip practitioners to do quick observational, you know, cl data collection that can give them sort of a lay of the land on a regular basis of their program that um, we might not be fully utilizing to this point. So where can folks go if they want to learn more about attunement? Uh, it's a great concept and, and it sounds like you've got a number of uh, published studies that are going to be coming out. Uh, how can folks learn more if they want to think about applying some of this to their work? Well, we do have two initial papers that we've written, one that's um, empirical and one that's conceptual on the mentoring fan that are published. That's one place to start. Um, they can always email me if they'd like to think about either training or using the tool or the approach of attunement. We're also in the process of building a website that will allow the scales that we're developing to be accessible. Um, and so if folks email me, I, will, I can direct them to that website. It is almost done. We're hoping to have it finished by the end of the summer. So those are kind of three different avenues to get an initial start on making use of this concept. But I always, I love hearing from practitioners who are interested in doing more and I can then send the articles also to them if they want to email me and they can find my email information on the website at Loyola as well. So now we've arrived at the part of the podcast where my guests get their revenge on me by uh, having a chance to ask me some questions. So we call this reverse rotation. 
Julia, you uh, probably have many things you'd like to ask me. I don't know what your questions are in advance, so uh, surprise me here and ask me anything you'd like. Yeah, so Mike, I I just am curious. I know you've been working in the field for a while now and have, you know, really are well connected to programs and kind of at that intersection between programs and research. And I I guess my two questions for you are one is like one or two of the more rewarding aspects of that work for you and or rewarding sort of areas of growth in the field that you've seen from your vantage point. And then my second question is what knowledge like as you work with programs, do you have a sense of kind of the one or two questions that programs are really grappling with that researchers might help respond to? Yeah, that's those are great questions. I think in terms of what I have found rewarding in my career, uh, and I wish I could point to like one landmark thing that I did that I was like, ah, oh, that was that was the one that was the capstone of my career or something, but. Uh, I'll just point out a couple of things. One is I actually got into this work because I wanted to be a librarian. A lot of people don't know that about me, but I was originally going to, my my life plan was I was going to be a nerdy librarian somewhere at a reference desk. And the reason I wanted to do that is I just loved providing information to people and helping them find whatever it was they were looking for. So I think the most gratifying and rewarding thing that's happened in my career is something that happens almost every day for me where I'm able to send somebody, uh, you know, a couple of articles or a study that explains something that they were wondering about or uh, do a little quick uh, mini synthesis of something if they've got a question about, you know, the best way to engage parents in a program or something like that. I love being a reference librarian. Uh, it is my passion, uh, is helping people find information uh, that's that's on point for whatever they need. Um, that is so cool, isn't it? I just have to say that you wanted to do that. And here you are in this, in this particular area. You are a librarian in certain ways. <laughs> In, in a way, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't do as much cataloging of books as I used to, but um, there are some boring parts of being a librarian. Um, and I think to the the second question you asked, which is, what are practitioners' programs really wondering that researchers can help with? I think, you know, I think Jean Rhodes and her forthcoming book here uh, that'll be out in the fall has really opened up. Um, a bit of a can of worms, but it's a good can of worms if there can be such a thing. Um, but it, she really points out, I think correctly, that um, mentors have to be more than just a friend, right? You have to have that relationship, but that relationship is a foundation and a context to do other meaningful things with that young person. And I think uh, she's correct in that, but there's really a couple different paths programs could go, which is if we're going to keep mentoring as like kind of a standalone thing that kids are offered, uh, how do we train up those mentors to not just be attuned, but if they are attuned, how do they then respond with the correct uh, intervention or strategy or form of support based on that young person's need? And there may be only so much we can do to train up the skills of mentors, especially if they're just volunteers, to be providing mental health interventions and reading interventions and other things like that. The other direction programs could go is to embed mentors within other systems. So uh, last year on the podcast, we had um, Elizabeth Higley from Great Life Mentoring come on and talk about their model where young people that are in clinical mental health services get a mentor through their program. And the job of the mentor uh, is to basically uh, be a, an emotional support and a friend and a, and a you know kind of a Jack of all trades support person to that young person while they're getting those clinical services and beyond. And so in that case, the mentor doesn't have to deliver, you know, mental health interventions as if they're some light version of a therapist. They can just be that mentor, right? So it actually takes it back to that original friend role um, by putting the intervention burden on a clinician where it probably should be. So I think programs are going to need a lot of help in the years to come working with evaluators and researchers to figure out how do they best either train up mentors to deliver more than that friendship, or how do they partner with other organizations so that mentors can stay in that friend role, but not you know take on more than they can chew, but 
but how does that partnership work? You know, how do the, how do you define that role within the context of other services? So mm, those are great questions. I I was just working with this organization called First Star this morning, which serves um, youth who are system involved. And one of the things we're trying to do is bring mentors in to, to support student educational pursuits because of where we are with the coronavirus and so many students doing remote learning this fall and, and really having struggled in spring. And so how can we, you know, the intervention is First Star, which is more of a supportive intervention for adolescents in care, but they need more around their educational achievement that a, that a mentor could provide. But, but, but we need to scope that mentor's role, right? And so if you're focused primarily on supporting educational outcomes, like how can you mentor them as they navigate the e-learning space and how can you support them in completing their assignments and how can you kind of build a relationship with them that helps them trust you so they can tell you when they don't understand things. And um, so I really love, I love that you're bringing that attention to kind of like what can mentors do? What's reasonable to expect of them? And, and, and how can we develop their skills or think of them as supplementary to other services, right? To, because a lot of young people have a lot of things that they need support with. Yeah, I think the field's going to be evolving and it's good. I mean, this is how uh, things do uh, grow and improve and, and get even better over time. So it's, it's a good time of introspection, I think, for our our field in a, a lot of ways. So appreciate that question. So thank you for a great conversation today, Julia. It's always good to catch up with you and talk shop. And I'm sure our audience uh, learned a lot about uh, the concept of attunement here and and are thinking about ways to apply that to their work. I really encourage folks to get a hold of that FAN framework that we talked about uh, and also you know, read the research papers that Julie has already published on this topic and, and go a little deeper in your understanding of attunement and how you might apply it to your work with young people. Uh, to that end, I will remind our audience that you can always get free technical assistance through the NMRC. So if this has inspired you to perhaps uh, think about uh, doing some work around attunement in your own mentor or staff training, uh, you can always reach out and get free technical assistance by visiting our website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org.org and clicking that uh, big red Get Technical Assistance button in the upper right-hand corner, and we will hook you up with uh, one of our expert consultants from around the country and get you help on uh, whatever it is that you want to improve about your services for young people. So on behalf of OJJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, I thank you for joining us today and and look, it may seem sometimes like researchers, you know, maybe have all the answers or have figured everything out. But the reality is, is we figure out what's meaningful about research in this work together by combining it with our practitioner wisdom and your own experiences working with youth and families in your communities. So I really appreciate you listening and, and getting some insights about new research. And I hope that you're thinking about creative ways to apply this to your own work. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research.